I remember saying to my husband, we will never have the internet in our house. And we didn't actually for a while. But I think that most people would admit that that really is, it's not just a losing battle, it's a lost battle. And so what I learned from the Spotify dude was like, if, you know, there are certain things, don't, don't fight it. But he's not saying submit. He's saying pivot, learn, reposition yourself and move forward. And I think that that's really important for us as a community and as humanity. Like this isn't going away. Social media is not going away. So we need to figure out how to optimize and extract and focus on all the good stuff and then do whatever we can to fight, minimize, create boundaries and disincentivize whatever we need to do for the bad stuff. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. The medium is the message, said philosopher Marshall McLuhan, and the idea that the way we receive information is likely more important and influential than the information itself is now truer than ever. Because of social media, our world has changed far more than we realize. For Orthodox Jews, who have lived behind literal and symbolic walls for the past 2,000 years, The change is one that may completely upend the way we understand the world at large and even the Torah itself. Some communities have responded by rejecting everything associated with the new media landscape, or at least they're trying. Others welcome it with open arms and perhaps throw all caution to the wind. Today, my guest will present a broad overview of the social media landscape and its potential dangers and genuine opportunities for people in general and for religious Jews in particular. I warn you in advance that if you're looking for straightforward answers, You won't find them here. Frankly, I'm not sure that cut-and-dried answers exist in this sphere. What my guest does is provide information about what social media can offer us and what it can and does take away. With that information, we'll need to learn to live with the nuance that such a multifaceted phenomenon demands. In order to discuss this topic, which is about as important a topic as exists in the Orthodox sphere today, whether we recognize it or not, I'm honored to welcome Dina Rabhan to the podcast. Dina Rabhan is a strategist and creative consultant with expertise in media, education, nonprofits, leadership, and mental health. Dina works with small and medium businesses and startups in the for-profit and nonprofit sector by building innovative strategies while optimizing their culture, people, processes, and anything related to media. Dina is also an advisor on two startup boards. She's the senior strategic advisor for a new charitable trust and is an executive producer for a new documentary film called Uncharitable. And on a personal level, Dina is a good friend of mine and Eliza's, and frankly, one of the best and most insightful people that we know. Dina Rabhan, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum podcast. Wow, that was very kind of you, Rabbi Scott. Thank you. The irony of our conversation today, Dina, is that we're really talking about whether or not the things that I do for a living and a lot of what you do for a living should exist at all. This podcast is about the propriety of podcasts. In some ways today, Dina, we're embodying a true orthodox conundrum to invoke the name of this podcast, because Torah living is largely about sanctifying the mundane, sanctifying the everyday. And that involves simultaneously opportunity and real danger. One of the Hushkafic points I often try to get across on the podcast, I hope people understand it, is that two 
conflicting truths can both be true at the same time. And certainly when we're talking about social media, when it relates to Orthodox people, I don't think the answer is going to come out at the end, social media bad or social media good. It's something which is going to require a lot of nuance in our discussion. I think that's a decent introduction to what we're going to talk about today, not necessarily giving answers, but giving an introduction to what it's all about. Social media is the water in which we swim. It's the air we breathe. It's all around us. And we'll talk even more about that particular idea a little later on. But there's a lot to talk about. So thank you for joining me again. And can I ask you, can you give our origin story? Because it actually relates directly to what we're talking about today. I'm so glad you asked. Not that we prepared or anything. I checked Twitter because that is the origin of our origin story in some way. And I look back and it's exactly a year since I sent a tweet that had to, I actually wrote it down what it was. I I wrote a, it was a, it was a reflective somewhat, um, it was waxing philosophical tweet that you responded privately to me. You DM'd me in response to it. My my tweet was about, I'm just gonna read it. it. I wrote, I'm losing my religion while desperately trying to find my faith. It's all about experiencing ambiguous loss an unresolved grief in the unsatisfying and inadequate answers and loss of confidence in systems and leadership I once trusted. So I, you you know, like I was a prime audience for Orthodox Conundrum, but what I appreciated, and it's part of why I'm a big fan of social media, despite understanding its complexity, is that you had the opportunity to read something that I shared and send me a private message that was very encouraging, not proselytizing by any means, but um, making me feel seen and heard in a way that I guess I, I couldn't find around me. That's our origin story, even though the truth of the matter is, is that many, many months before, one of my adult daughters, she told me about intimate Judaism and said to me, you know, I found this podcast. It's really amazing. Mom, I think you might want to listen to it. <laughs> so I took the, I took the muster and I actually discovered you through Intimate Judaism, which is a fantastic, fantastic podcast. And then, you know, as, as it goes with the rabbit hole of social media, I discovered Orthodox Conundrum and then we bumped into each other on Twitter. And then since then, you and your dear wife, Aliza, and I have developed this incredible friendship. Well, I'm very appreciative of social media because of that as well, as well as for some of the other things that has allowed me to do, such as make a living. Let's talk about that a little bit, Dina. Can you open up by saying what exactly you do and how it relates to social media? So I have a, a zigzaggy career story, which I think most people do, but people don't see it. It's kind of like hidden. Um, I, I'm very fortunate to have had an incredible childhood raised by Um, a mom, a dad, and a stepdad who not only exemplified Jewish values and the importance of Jewish tradition, but gave me a worldview that made me want to not just love my values and live my values, but really lead with values. And so I've spent my life finding professional opportunities where I can lead with these critical Jewish values. And I have to say that I wasn't raised with an obsession or focus on Jewish ritual. I was raised in a non-Orthodox home, so it was all just normal, kind of the air we breathe. But it was really about the pursuit of justice and compassion and kindness and all the things about self-sacrifice, giving back, community. And because of 
these incredible humans that really got it into my wiring, you know, like from a really early age of my mom would say it's my kishkas. I started my career in Jewish education. I married a rabbi, community building, more Jewish education, end up getting a degree in mental health, because when you're a community leader, you start to understand the necessity of not just being intuitive, but actually being trained in how to work with people. And then I, you know, slowly but surely found my way into educational consulting, and then ultimately into building a nonprofit Jewish media company. So I would say that I was always looking for opportunities to do, I don't want to say innovate, because it sounds so cliche, but I always, I've never been stuck in a box and wanted to just maintain status quo, always was always looking, how can we do this better? How can we do this smarter? How can we have greater impact? How can we, you know, have better return on investment? And it landed me in a media job, um, not having been trained at all. And it was like the culmination of a lot of my passions. And it awoke in me this realization and really further ignited my passion for what media can do to make our world a better place and to help people and to advance humanity. And now today, when people say, oh, what do you do? You're a strategy and creative consultant. I'm fortunate to be able to take my generalist background in education and social work and educational consulting in community building, in running a business and turning a business over and in media. And I'm able to apply that pretty broadly to support nonprofits and um, small enterprises in really optimizing and dreaming big. And let me add one thing to that, Dina. You clearly are passionate about your work, but in particular, with regards to what we're doing today, you have a real passion for the possibilities and perils of social media. We've talked about that a lot in our conversations. It's not just something you work in. It's something you care deeply about what social media can become. Yeah, I think, you know, I'm a forever learner and I'm a deeply curious person, but I was not motivated the way that others might have been at a young age. When we were younger, Scott and I were, were about the same age. When we were younger, if you were a curious person, you know, you had to like go to an Encyclopedia Britannica. It was like a big commitment. You have to get to the library. I mean, you could read, there was, there was an opportunity. And I lived in a household with parents who took that opportunity, but I wasn't motivated the same way. And what has happened since I got a smartphone I and I, try to remind my children that the iPhone is like a decade old. So when I got my iPhone, I already had four children, like just in the context of my life. But it was able to ignite a curiosity I always had, but it was well matched because we live in the age of curious. If you're curious, it is the time to be alive. And so what is more exciting for a curious forever learner than social media and the internet, which has democratized information and access to experts. It's the great equalizer so that it's not just for the elite and it's the great connector and on and on and on. I think it would be worthwhile to start off with some inside baseball. 
I assume most people listening have heard of the major social media platforms, but it's probably worthwhile to get a short feel for what each one is, for whom each one is designed, and what each one does well, and then I'll read them off one by one. If there's an important one that I miss, let me know and we'll talk about that one too, okay? Absolutely. Let's do it. Let's start off with Facebook. Ah, number one. Facebook is really the number one platform. It's getting all the hate nowadays, but it has over 3 billion users globally with almost 2 billion daily users. It is like an incredibly, incredibly powerful platform. And everybody who's listening understands for good and bad. If you're a business, Facebook is critical to your business because that is how you're generating leads. It's your storefront to the world. So if you speak to any kind of business, they're not going to hate on Facebook because it is a critical revenue driver for their business. It's great in so many ways. And everybody knows the big scandal with um, Cambridge Analytica and what happened with, you know, the corruption. With the 2016 election. And, and we're not going to go down that uh, path because there's a lot of, a lot of concern about, you know, what Facebook has to offer, but it is the most powerful platform. And with uh, it changing its brand to Meta and really looking into the metaverse and AI and what's in the future. It will be leading us into the future, whether we like it or not. Okay, let's go on to Twitter. Oh my God, Twitter is a town square. Again, I don't know if you want me to say like everything has good and bad. I think this whole show, if anybody's listening to this show, there are going to be things you agree with, things you don't agree with. Like you said, we're living in nuance here. We're going to hold two truths at the same time. Twitter is incredible. You can build a proper community of engaged people that are like-minded that or not, but are really interested in what you have to say. It's an opportunity to talk to people in real time. I don't want to use the word authentic because everybody has like their social media fake authenticity or whatever right. that means, but it's an incredibly powerful platform. Again, we saw for good and for bad. And that's the, that's the debate. The debate is, you know, what would happen if it disappeared and what would we be bereft of? Like, what would we be missing in our lives? Um, and what would be better and more secure without it existing. But Twitter is also a really important business tool um, and community building tool. Okay, TikTok. Oh, my favorite. Again, all of these can be like fully addictive and all the problems we're going to get to. TikTok is rapidly growing and it's a phenomena that people are watching and analyzing because the algorithm really democratized access to human beings. It was uh, very favorable for people to be able to grow their audiences very quickly. So both individuals, everyone knows like the incredible creators and businesses are all over TikTok using it as a way to reach people. People think it's interesting because I see even uh, Hollywood personalities were like, oh, you're on the TikTok. Like, really? That's how you're talking about something, which is like going to be if it's the second most powerful search engine after Google and you're talking about it as the TikTok and only a place that teenage kids do silly dances. No, TikTok is an incredible resource for fun and silly and memes and personalities, but also for rich, important, valuable content for things that you're curious about. I mean, I think you should be on TikTok, Scott. That's definitely- Okay, well, have to practice my dance moves, I guess. Next, Instagram. So Instagram, you know, is owned by Facebook. 
So it's, it's a different aesthetic than Facebook. Again, a very important business tool. And I think TikTok was in many ways a response to Instagram because Instagram, Instagram is very visual. And I know it has also Instagram reels. People use it, but in a very curated way, curated, edited, um, very specific look type of way. And TikTok is not. I mean, it is becoming more and more. But the look of TikTok is more raw, more real, um, where you can do less of the aesthetic curation that is necessary for Instagram. But Instagram, Facebook, you know, when you post on Facebook, it, it lets you say you want to post on Instagram, vice versa. So it has certain similarities because it is part of the same company, but being used very differently by people and businesses, you know, depending on what they need. How about Reddit. I'm actually not so familiar with it. It is a very powerful search engine, but I don't feel so comfortable speaking about it because there are people out there who have more knowledge and expertise of the platform. But I know that it's powerful and a place that people go when they're looking to look up information, when they're seeking ideas and information. And so it is a player. I'm just not so familiar with it. LinkedIn. So LinkedIn you know, started as uh, really just a dynamic resume site and now has become 810 million users strong and is a place, definitely a professional. I mean, people, people make fun of it, but it's a, it's a fantastic place for brand building, um, your professional identity building and, and learning. It really is a fantastic learning platform, but like all of the media platforms, they're constantly trying to figure out how to grab more of our attention, make more money. And I'm officially a LinkedIn creator. You know, I work with them and I see how they've now hired TikTok creators to post on LinkedIn. And it just like isn't feeling right to me yet. And so I watch how that evolves. How about YouTube? So YouTube, I mean, my God, YouTube is like uh, just a, a monster company, you know, owned by Google, which is really Alphabet. YouTube is, because it's attached, because it's Google, is the most powerful search engine. And anybody who's doing anything and trying to build anything is using YouTube because they understand that when you Google something, Google is doing preferential boosting of your content if it's something that's on YouTube because that serves their monetization strategies. And that's why the Orthodox Conundrum has to live on YouTube also because it's a discovery platform, it's a learning platform, and it's a monetization platform. It's incredibly powerful and it's just growing and growing unstoppable. Well, we really should have uh, videoed this, I guess. Okay, whatever. Um, WhatsApp. So WhatsApp also owns by the behemoth face. Meta, right. Um, Meta, correct. It's funny because WhatsApp actually reached out to me on Twitter. And it was such a, it was so weird because I actually didn't believe that it was true. I, I, I clicked on the person who, you know, on the name that DM'd me to see where it would bring me to. And it brought me to the blue check WhatsApp on Twitter. And basically they said to me, hey, we saw a tweet that you sent out that mentioned WhatsApp can we get permission to use your 
tweet for our marketing materials. So I had this like really interesting experience back and forth because they had to send me a contract and I had to read through it. I have no idea whether it's ever going to be used or not. I tried to negotiate a blue check on my Instagram from them. It didn't work because they, oh. they claimed that they have no, you know, WhatsApp is totally separate. But listen, let's remember what happened when WhatsApp went down. Do you remember, Scott? Oh, yeah. It was a disaster. So, and where did everybody go? I don't know the answer to that. Everybody went to Twitter. It was the funniest thing. Twitter had, I forgot what the actual tweet was. It was like, hello world or something like that. (laughs) But what was so interesting was that outside of the US, and I'm sure you experienced this with your US family and counterparts, certainly I do, like WhatsApp groups are less of a thing in the US because people have iPhones and they're using messaging and, and- Yeah, my family thinks it's an Israeli thing. Yeah, right. So it's not an Israeli thing. It's a worldwide thing. It's just not an American thing. Exactly. Outside of US, again, with, you know, just massive and very powerful and something that um, people are using as a critical tool in their businesses for connecting with their customers and building communities as well. One final question. You can add if there are any that I didn't mention, but you said the word blue check. And I think it's important that people who don't know what a blue check is know what a blue check is. Can you just explain that term? Oh my gosh, I'm, I know someone's going to have to correct me on this. It's it's when you're verified, which basically means that you've been recognized as legit and real because they've checked that you're you're not a bot, you're a real person. And in many instances, you have to have a level of influence and following to be able to receive this coveted blue check, which exists on Twitter, it exists on TikTok, it exists on Instagram. And so do I really understand like, what are the benefits of it? No, I don't have expertise in that. I'm sure people will fill that in for me. But, you know, I was trying to negotiate it because I don't have, I play on social media all the time as a way for me to understand the platforms, but have spent not enough time figuring out my own brand and building my brands on social media. Okay. Maybe we can work on that in the future. That's something uh, Javier can uh, be involved in in anyway. In my plans, for sure. So did I cover the main ones? Is there anything that I missed or we're good? You definitely missed. You missed. (laughs) Did I miss Be Real? Is that possible? No, Be Real is a, you did miss Be Real, but that's a new, it's a new social media app that I really like, I haven't done enough research on it, but um, you know, it's Saturday, Saturday Night Live did this like funny skit that was going all over I don't even know where I saw it, maybe on TikTok, uh, of what Be Real is, which is like you get notified. I don't even know how many times during the day I have it. And I've used it to try to understand what it is. But the idea is that you just take, you have two minutes to take a picture and it's trying to promote um, authenticity, kind of like being able to share and be part of this global community, but without an obsession of constantly scrolling through your social media. That's probably a poor man's version of, and for all I know, it'll be sold for $5 billion to Meta eventually. I have no idea, but it's still in its early phases. You didn't mention Snapchat, which is really important. I thought Snapchat was on the decline. That's why I didn't include that. So it's so interesting. Snapchat has 494 million users who are almost all under the age of 30. So it is an incredibly valuable, valuable social media platform that 
when other platforms emerged, people were like, oh, that's the end of Snapchat. No, Snapchat is alive, kicking and well. And brands that are looking to invest in what's called the LTV, the lifetime value of customers, and they want to get them young and devoted to their brands really young, Snapchat is, is an incredibly important platform. And as far as I understand, at least it from my own children, it's very popular in the US, you know, instead of DMing or whatever, people, young kids are using Snapchat as a primary connecting, you know, social tool with their friends. So that's a really important one. Another one that you missed, which is really important is Pinterest, which oh. is over 80% women, but it has 430 plus million users. And it has a very particular role to play with style, lifestyle, fashion, do it yourself, but it is strong and thriving and for people and businesses still very much in play. All right. So now that we have Snapchat and Pinterest, have we covered the main players in the sphere? I mean, I, you know, we could talk about Clubhouse, but it's basically, I don't, you can't call it defunct, but it came and went. If anything, it's a tale of how rapidly the landscape changes, how hard it is to break in to develop a social media app and people who like to believe that I'm gonna, you know, I'm the person who's gonna develop the next Twitter or whatever it is, it's really, really rough to do. And Clubhouse had this meteoric rise because of the, I don't know, because of the pandemic, but during the pandemic, and then just like petered out, especially because Twitter offered to buy it, they didn't wanna be bought, and then Twitter just copied and created Twitter spaces. And then that was really... And that was the end of that. This has all been by way of introduction, of course. So let's talk about the positives and the negatives of social media. And let's start off first with some of the positives. We'll get to the negatives afterwards. And I'll point out, of course, that we speak about any given positive. It also might be negative, And we'll talk about first why it's positive. Later on, we'll talk about why that same thing, why that same aspect of it could be something which is dangerous. And also, Dean, I want to preface this discussion now by acknowledging that neither you nor I are experts in protecting kids or anybody else from dangers inherent in social media. So people should not be expecting professional advice about how to save ourselves, how to save our families from Instagram or Twitter or whatever, because that's not where we're going. That's right. I mean, there are professionals in the Jewish and even in the Orthodox community, outside of the Orthodox Jewish community, that their expertise is around internet safety and setting boundaries and guidelines for social media use. It's interesting because this is like a little tangential, but hopefully you'll understand what I'm saying is that I, I was listening to a podcast as one does, the um, chief product officer of Spotify, who was talking about never fighting macro wins. So what are macro wins? He said, don't fight a macro win because you're going to lose. And he said, a, a macro win is like massive societal changes that are bigger than any one person or any one company. Like you can't- Macro wind with a D at the end. A macro wind. 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 Got it. Yes. W-I-N-D-S. Like don't fight a macro wind. And as a tech person in Spotify, he said, you know, like we could not fight the, the onset of smartphones or cheap broadband or machine learning and AI. Like if you try to fight it, you will lose. So he said, you have to rethink your position and then you have to reposition yourself. And instead of having the wind blowing you, you back in your face, you wanna get the wind at your back. And I think that 
it's an important context when we're talking about the losing battle of trying to say, you know, what years ago, a decade ago, or less than a decade ago, when everyone was like, no smartphones, no, I'm going to make a really big, I'm going to admit to something really big. I think it was 1998. And I remember I was living in Queens, New York. And I remember that on the buses, all of a sudden you started seeing www. whatever it was. It was, I'm old enough to have to remember this, folks. And I I remember saying to my husband, we will never have the internet in our house. <laughs> and I remember saying it. I don't have such a great memory, but obviously there was like something about that. And we didn't actually for a while. But you know, I think that, That's pretty funny. I think that most people would admit that that really is, it's not just a losing battle, it's a lost battle. And so what I learned from the Spotify dude was like, if, you know, there are certain things, don't, don't fight it, but he's not saying submit. He's saying pivot, learn, reposition yourself and move forward. And I think that that's really important for us as a community and as humanity, like this isn't going away. Social media is not going away. So we need to figure out how to optimize and extract and focus on all the good stuff and then do whatever we can to fight, minimize, create boundaries and disincentivize whatever we need to do for the bad stuff. And this relates directly to that idea of the Internet Asifa, which was however many months ago. In fact, I remember a podcast I was producing with Chochmat Nashim. So I was in the room as they were recording it. I wasn't on the podcast, but I was there. They were interviewing somebody with a disguised voice who was at the Internet Asifa and was criticizing it. A disguised voice tells you everything you need to know. And she said what they talked about at the Internet Asifa, the Internet is trafe. There is no way to bring it in. We have to keep it completely outside of our community. We have to have a Kadosh community. And she mentioned how in her community, the community where they want to keep the Internet far away, there were Amazon packages being delivered every single block, every single hour. If they believe that the Internet is not already in there, if the gates have not been breached, they're only fooling themselves. And you're saying that's exactly the point. If we work against it, that's not necessarily an answer that's going to get anyone anywhere rather than try and use it for our benefit and then trying to avoid the dangers more productively and nuanced in a nuanced manner, I guess. Which, if we're honest, is it is the work of life, right? You said it in the intro. We have to live in conflict. And that is really hard, especially in the Orthodox community, because at least me personally, we didn't talk a lot about holding two truths because there was a lot of one truth. And a lot of training of our thinking around one truth or absolute truth. And so learning how to hold multiple truths and living in conflict and living in tension is incredibly uncomfortable. I mean, you can look, there are quotes from here till tomorrow that talk about that is the work of life. That is our work of life. And that if you flatten that, if you take that away, it's like tyrannical. You're taking away the pursuit of who we are as human beings. But I think it's really important for all of us to recognize that it is a struggle, a constant struggle, and nobody likes feeling uncomfortable. And if you can get rid of discomfort, that is kind of where we we will be biased toward that. But with something like this, we're going to just have to be uncomfortable all the time. And work- I think you're right. Yeah, and work towards- doing it better and commit and pay attention and commit to having to 
to do what needs to be done to make it better, but it's not simple. So with that, that's a good segue into the positives and we will get to the dangers, but let's talk about some of the positives. And Dina, maybe you can list for me and explain some of the positive things that come out of social media. And then if I want to add something or have an idea that you don't mention, I can throw it out to you and you can tell me what you think of that. Okay. So why don't you start and say some of the positives? Well, I'd like to do it first, kind of like inner circle and then outer circle. Inner circle is just like personally and then communally, and then maybe the marketplace, like the business world. And I think that everybody is going to have different answers to each of those concentric circles, right? So I'm going to speak from a a personal place and from my anecdotal life experience. But personally, you know, social media, like I said, it's like the great democratizer of learning and access. And I watch and listen and follow the most incredible minds, authors and political thinkers and rabbis and teachers and people of different faith and friends who I get to read their inner thoughts. I get to be exposed to their worldview and it is so rich and enriching and exciting. And I I tell everybody and they're always a little taken back, like I love social media. I think it's It's incredible and I feel so fortunate to have the opportunity to have access to this kind of information and learning and people. And it's not just the, the, I'm a curious person. And so obviously this is, uh, I'm naturally inclined toward this. It also has to do like with, you know, mental health and feeling alone. And what social media has done is that it's created a space for people to be heard, and more importantly, seen. One of the things I watch on TikTok, I follow something called Mom Talk. And Mom Talk- Mom Talk. Yeah, so it actually is mostly young moms raising young children, which I am no longer doing. Uh, I still have kids that are young, but not that young. And what you see are, some of them are actually quite serious and they're sharing like very seriously the struggles. And some of them are just making hilarious videos and memes. But what all of them are doing are making moms feel seen in something that before that, maybe you would have picked up a book Maybe you were lucky to live in a community, but people in general don't sit down with other people and say, let me tell you about my mental health struggles or how I feel like I'm completely losing myself as a human being because all I do is take care of children or how I feel touched out at the end of the day because I have kids who are on top of me all day or how I fluctuate between complete self-abnegation and mom rage all day and don't and think that there's something incredibly deficient about me because of it. And what I what I love about following it is because I'm first of all, it's like funny and really interesting as a phenomenon. But what I'm so happy about is that my kids, as they begin to grow their families and, and have children, will have a community of people who are saying the quiet parts out loud. And this is true across any space, any discipline, any sector, any common interest is that you have a way to find your people and for people to say things that you might have thought, I am the only person who thinks and believes this. Because by the way, that is human nature. We all think that our struggles are really unique. And for the Jewish community, and I know that this is one of your 
this kind of the ethos of, of Orthodox conundrum and definitely intimate Judaism is saying the quiet parts out loud, the things that people would be too embarrassed or shy or afraid to even talk about. And then you talk about it and it's like, whoa, it's the great validator. And helping somebody feel seen is one of the greatest gifts you can give to somebody because you diminish their sense of loneliness. So, yeah, I want to add to that just a point because what you say about intimate Judaism is very true. We see it all the time, Tali Rosenbaum and I, in the emails that we receive and the communications we get from people who are, I'm not trying to toot my horn, it's not about that. It's just about saying, as you say, the quiet part out loud, allowing discussions to take place that in the past no one would even have thought of, dreamed of having such a discussion. And people say, wow, I can't believe this is being talked about. I always thought X and now I see, once again, it's not so simple. There's nuance. There's more to be said than I assumed. In the past, a lot of the time when it came to a lot of the questions that we talk about in both Orthodox Conundrum and in Intimate Judaism, people assumed if you have to ask, don't, because the answer is going to be no and it's going to be embarrassing. Now, by opening up, by democratizing these communities, by creating these communities, people have a safe place to talk about these things. And I'll say something else. There's another element of democracy. I just want to further what you mentioned, which is even the fact, apart from I'm talking about intimate Judaism, people can respond to us or a Facebook group, people can respond. The fact that this podcast exists, the fact that a regular guy has the opportunity to go and pontificate the way I do is something which 20 years ago would have been simply impossible. I would have either had to convince a radio station manager to let me on or create at massive expense some pirate radio station. And even then, it would only be a local show. Nowadays, in theory, there's nothing stopping me from reaching, in principle, anyone who wants to listen, which means that the democratization of giving over of yourself, allowing people to have a voice, is a huge opportunity that comes directly out of social media's popularity. A friend of ours, Carrie Barcone, has recently been putting up these TikTok videos. The challah going... lady, the challah dancing lady. Exactly. And this is something that she loves. It's something which gives her sipuka nefesh. It gives her a sense of personal satisfaction. She grew up as an actress, as somebody who does this sort of thing. And now all of a sudden, she has the opportunity to do it and get millions of people, literally, to watch it. I think that's an amazing aspect of it because people sometimes need that. People want to feel heard, both in terms of the problems you mentioned, in terms of things that are difficult in their lives, whether it's about mental health or mom rage, but also simply to express themselves. And when you express yourself, yes, on the one hand, you say, look, as long as you're engaging in self-expression, who cares who listens to it? Well, it's not so simple. It's nice to have someone else listen to it also and to be able to maybe even influence other people and tell them, this is what I think, and maybe you should think about that too. I think it's tremendous. I forgot the quote, Henri, you quoted him. The, uh, Henri Nguyen? Yeah. He said, what is most personal is most universal. Yes. And I think that, again, the common thread in that is is how people just feel alone with who they are. And so... What could be better than making sure that we have a space to diminish that and to make people feel less alone and experience all different, you know, joy and connection and all of the wonderful, critical emotions that we deserve? That leads to another positive, even though it's something which people don't like to talk about, but it's very important that it happens. It's pulling back the curtain on things that otherwise would have remained hidden societally that perhaps we're not happy about, whether it's sexual predators that now are exposed with greater ease, 
Or even something like, and Lahav deal, I'm not comparing it at all, but the most recent video that's going around now with Baruch Levine's video, At Alit Al Kulana, which is a video put out in Lakewood about Kolo wives. And for people there who want to live a life like that, I don't want to get into what it is all about. That's fine. a different I'm not, podcast. I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> it's a different podcast. I'm not even criticizing the video. That's not even my point. Although it didn't speak to me. Let's just say that. Although it wasn't designed to. On the other hand, some people find it fundamentally offensive. And in the past, well, admittedly in the past, the video wouldn't have been made. That's also a result of social media and being put on YouTube. But assuming something like this, this message were being given to certain people, and let's assume, for the sake of argument, it's not a good message. Now people can actually comment on it and say, wait, I didn't know this message was being transmitted, but now that I see that it's there, I can try to change things or try to influence things in a direction which I think is healthier. So we're not talking about the negatives yet. What I'm hearing you say is that it's, it's that now we have the opportunity to share ideas, right? Like sharing ideas has been democratized and there's incredible power and positive opportunities because of that. Right. Some ideas that some people don't want to share. Right. Well, every, it's so funny because I didn't write it down, but every single point that we just made about the positives, there's literally a flip to every single, if I wrote it down, then I'd be able to just quickly you know, go through it. But Every single thing we just said, there's actually a negative. And it's not just like a little bit of a negative, like a serious, dark negative. To I agree. Absolutely. So are there any more positives that you want to mention before we get into the negatives? I mean, I can go on and on. I, you know, I think that um, I am up for the challenge and I'm happy. I take the challenge with uh, pr- I feel privileged and joy in having the challenge of figuring out how to deal with the stuff we're about to to talk about, which is is actually really, really scary and very serious. But I in at the end of the day, I really believe in media, which is why. And I think that if you're a business, I don't care if you're a nonprofit, I don't care if you're a small business, big business, if you're a solopreneur, if you're a consultant or whatever, whoever you might be, everybody is a media company because everybody has an opportunity to be able to communicate something valuable and unique to the world. And we should all be trying to figure out what that is, whether it's becoming a content creator ourselves and putting our own content out there or doing like you just said before, becoming someone who gets to interact with ideas and be able to reflect and respond to be able to make the conversation Richard, I'm excited by the world that we live in. And now we can flip to why I'm petrified by the world that we live in as well. Okay, so go for it. Let's hear about some of the dangers. And you can directly relate it to what we just said. I understand. I felt the same way. All of those positives have a flip side. None of them is univocally or completely positive. Let's just say some of the facts on the ground. All of the social media companies are publicly traded companies that are growth stocks and that have a mandate from their investors to make more money, not just to make money, but to find ways to continuously grow their profits. And at the end of the day, that is all they care about. And that means as we live in the attention economy, their mandate is to try to monopolize and what I would say colonize our brains and get as much of our waking attention as they can. I mean, that is, they are on a mission and they are using every sneaky trick, biochemical, psychological, every sneaky trick to be able to suck up 
and divert as much of our human attention as possible. And they're coming for all of us. And there's nobody right now who's here to save us. Like it's really, it is a dark, uh, scary and evil place. And it's, it feels so weird because I feel like we could have had totally separate podcasts. We could have been like, woohoo, social media is the best thing ever. Let's just like laugh and go through our TikTok feeds and have so much fun. And then we could have a, a podcast, which is like, all about the um, Center for Humane Technology, which was the organization behind The Social Dilemma, which was the movie that petrified all of the parents because it, it pulled back the curtain on how social media companies are not just being clever, they're figuring out how to addict all of us in the most pernicious ways. And especially our young children who have developing minds and so like i'm old you're you know we're older and you can call me old it's okay <laughs> well, we're, no, we're peers. i heard that head <laughs> <laughs> i'm old we're old <laughs> i can call myself old i'm not going to call anybody else old but you know there it's a we're in a very different place I, i'm you know i have a degree in mental health and you know the developing brain and while and by the way the brain is constantly developing so we can rewire our brains forevermore. So it's scary for us also, but what it's doing to our children is harrowing. And so the, you know, the dangers, there are too many actually to really list all of the dangers because it's, it's addiction, it's security, it's data, it's world. What do you mean it's data? What does that mean? That the companies are stealing all our data. Mm -hmm. Or how about, I'll, I'll say it a little nicer. They're collecting all our data and so, and it's becoming so incredibly normal to the point where I could be having a casual conversation with my 11 year old and I'll say, well, yeah, Siri, you know, on our iPhone, we'll hear that we just said that and we're going to get like some sort of ad. And she's like, and you what? do. And she's like, what? what, what did you just say, mommy? You know, like what, what about the, um, you know, the, the home, um, whatever they're called, like the systems that everybody has that plays the music in their home and uh, Alexa. Yeah, sorry. And all the Google homes, like they're all collecting all the data on everybody, whether it's true or not. I'm sure there are people out there who are saying, oh, Dean, you're so ignorant. That's not how it works. But the the dangers are actually um, very, very real. I mean, also, even from a religious perspective, and this is something some people will say it's not dangerous at all. But I think classically, we've always had ghetto walls that protected us from people who wanted to hurt us. And we had intellectual walls that protected us from ideas that were antithetical to Torah ideas. And now those walls are simply no longer in existence. There's a quote, which I don't have the exact quote in front of me. I mentioned it to you several months ago by James Carroll, whom I mentioned in my previous podcast with Dr. Simkovich. James Carroll wrote a book called Constantine's Sword. And when he was in the seminary to become a priest, he talked about how he brought a carton of uh, philosophical books, just things he wanted to read. And he was shocked and somewhat amused when he was told by one of his superiors, you can't bring several of those books into the seminary. They are on the index of forbidden books, which is a remnant of the Inquisition. And what he said, which was pretty funny, he said what was amazing wasn't just that he had this run-in with the Inquisition, so to speak, but that the books that are on the index of forbidden books are available in paperback. And... <laughs> And on audio, on audio book being read to you. Right, exactly. Well, this is in the 1960s. So what was true in the 1960s is true a thousandfold today, where ideas that there are things that I might be okay reading myself. There are things that I might not want to read myself. There are things that, regardless, I don't want my kids to look at. 
democratization. Anyone can look at anything if they know how. And that information up there, for better or for worse, is available. And that can be dangerous for people who want to live a Torah lifestyle. I, I don't want to deny that, even though in some ways, as you mentioned, it's good. And I do believe in living with multiple truths and being able to hold two truths in our hand. And I was just reading over Yom Tov, a piece by Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, as explained by Rav Shagar, about that exact idea, how it's called the halal hapanui, the empty space that's involved in God's contraction of himself and Kabbalistic thought, so to speak. That is where these contradictions reside in silence because there is no answer. I understand and I can accept that. I'm also almost 52 years old. And I'm not so sure that my 13-year-old is equally able to hold multiple truths in her hand, and maybe I don't want her to have access to that. I think it's an important point as well. I mean, this is actually, I think, where my personal greatest tension lies, which is that for exactly what you just described, the world is open, the world of ideas are open, and the liberal side of me is like incredibly inspired and excited by that opportunity for myself and for my family. And I, I feel a constant tension around how does that play out? What does that look like? And um, how do we navigate those waters? And I feel like the Jewish community in general is really behind. You know, it's funny, when I worked in mental health, one of my mentors, Dr. David Pelkovitz, would always say the Jewish community is like a decade plus behind in anything related to mental health uh, in the general community, and like then we eventually catch up. And I really still believe that the Jewish community at large is behind in understanding the importance and power of leveraging, investing in social media and in personalities and leaders who can provide what uh, we all deserve and need. And we shouldn't have to be, you know, like finding them at Pesach programs, like we should be populating the quote unquote airwaves and social media with opportunities for these kinds of conversations, which you have and a few other people are having, but it's not enough. And it shouldn't just be, you know, on podcasting, like there should be bold, ambitious investment strategies around how the Jewish community can navigate into the future, leveraging all of social media, all of the best of social media to be able to enrich. And it's funny because I don't like to come from a place of danger and scared and it's not the kind of person that I am, but it's to help us. We need help because the, the world has changed so dramatically and our access to everything has changed so dramatically. And I feel like as a community, while there has been a proliferation of available Jewish media content, I built a company. It's not enough. It's not nearly enough. And as a community, when we're thinking about where are we allocating our funds, I believe, and this is my radical belief about the Jewish community, we have all of the intelligence and capabilities and funds. We have all of the resources, human and financial, to be able to address all of our challenges as we encounter them but we have to be deploying them with vision, with bold, bold vision. And that requires support and investment. And I, and it definitely does not, it does not yet exist. And I think it's, I, I don't want to be a doomsday, you know, I don't want to make like paint an awful picture, but I think that it will continue to put the Jewish community at crisis because we just are not taking advantage of what we can do with social media. 
I agree with you. I wouldn't necessarily say that it's coming from a place of doomsday or danger. I would put it more simply that we've got two sides of a coin. We've got heads and we've got tails. And heads is amazing, can do so much. Tails is quite dangerous. And we need people to invest in making sure that it lands on heads. That's what it comes down to. I think that, you know, it's because of the debate, where do funds get allocated and in-person, real human interaction versus leveraging different social media platforms. I think that there are people who are continue to be biased toward the human interaction and the opportunities for learning enrichment, expanding our worldview through the actual in-person education and, and experiences. And I'm a, I agree. Yes. To all of that. And yes to the other. And we just can't like, there's just no scaling. You cannot scale if you stay in an analog space. And I think that as a Jewish community, we need to be focused on how can we scale and enrich. So I want to add another aspect of that democratization of knowledge and what you just mentioned, the danger of, or what we were talking about, the danger of maybe knowledge that we're not necessarily ready for, people aren't ready for. There's also another kind of knowledge, which is knowledge, which is not true. And we see now a different danger with social media is the rise of conspiracy theories, the rise of universal expertise where it does not belong. I certainly am not someone who appeals to authority to shut down arguments, but there is a difference between someone watching a YouTube video for an hour and someone who went to medical school and talking about medicine. That is clear, and people don't realize that. I just want to read a quote from Michael Scott of The Office about Wikipedia. This is the quote. You ready? Wikipedia is the best thing ever. Anyone in the world can write anything they want about any subject, so you know you are getting the best possible information. And I think that encapsulates exactly what I'm trying to say. And we're not hating on Wikipedia. No. (laughs) Wikipedia can be a, a highly functional resource, a valuable resource. This comes down to digital literacy. Like, we all need extensive training on digital literacy and understanding extremism, understanding how to find it. It's actually, it's interesting because when I say the Jewish community needs to be investing more boldly in in the media space, I mean this also. In other words, not just the trainings that need to happen on how we protect our children and how to set up rules of which um, nobody should call me for advice. But it's also like general digital literacy, which by the way, we, I, you know, that's something that I heard about a decade ago at an educational conference that I was a part of. This is critical and more critical than ever, how to do research and, and validate and verify what you're reading, how to know what you're listening to, how to know if you're going down a rabbit hole of extremism and extreme thought. There are media brands that are being built currently and that exist that try to offer, I'm not talking about the Jewish community, outside of the Jewish community in general, that that are trying to build brands that are all about a nuanced approach with, I don't want to say both sides, but giving people like a broad view or helping them see like this is coming from this news outlet, this coming from that news outlet and trying to give people, guide them in their knowledge seeking so that they're not just left to what ends up happening to so many of us. And I'm saying it honestly, is that you kind of pick a lane and then it becomes a surround sound of your echo chamber of whatever it is your beliefs are. And they just keep getting reinforced and reinforced and reinforced. And you don't even realize that you, you know, that you're deep down that rabbit hole. And so I think that this is, you know, one of the things that as a Jew, and and you can speak to this, Scott, because this is, you're the rabbi. I'm just the regular, I'm just the rabbi's wife. And 
I'm kidding, everybody. I'm <laughs> not just <them. laughs> So, no, but you have the expertise. You are a rabbi's wife. Let's, let's no, but make I, that clear. Yes, I am. But I, I didn't mean that in a, in a denigrating way. What's important is that, you know, as Jews, we are commanded and our purpose in the world and in our lives are around sanctifying, elevating, bringing light to dark. And I think that we should not take a back seat in this struggle and in these tensions around social media, that we should see that we have an opportunity to lead and to partake in how can we elevate the social media landscape and the opportunities all of the positive stuff, what can we do to contribute to developing more humane ways of interacting with it and being a part of it and, and promoting it and all the rest. And so I think that we shouldn't just think of ourselves as like passive victims of what's going on around us, but that we should see that we actually can have an active role. And I think that our mutual friend, Rabbi Ari Lamb, it sounds to me that's something that he's really working on extensively. He's trying to bring a Jewish message. It's not exactly the same thing, but bringing a Jewish message out to the wider world as opposed to saying we'll just react. Let's actually go and take a message out, not to proselytize, but to to uh, engage people of faith and say we have a message for everybody else. And you're saying in the same kind of way, I think, that the coarsening of discourse that I think, at least in my experience, is endemic to Twitter. And because you have to say something in 280 characters, you're going to say it in the most extreme way possible if you want to get attention. We have to find better ways and say that we have a message that that's not the way you're supposed to speak. And bullying is not a Jewish idea. It's against Jewish ideas. And speaking with nibble peh and speaking incorrectly and speaking in a cruel way is not a Jewish idea. We have to take those Jewish ideas and move them out further in order to try to improve the landscape, not just for members of the Jewish people, but for everybody who's using social media. It's kind of what I started this conversation with, which is that as a child, I, that's what I was taught. I was taught to live my values and to lead with, with values. And those values were about when people describe like, what kind of Jew are you? Are you a, this kind of Jew or that kind of Jew? I'm a Jew where to me, ritual practice is not what's inspirational to me. What's inspirational to me are our values, which I know, by the way, we share with many other faiths, but in the Jewish faith, our values are what animate who I am and what I believe that I can contribute and, and lead with. And I, and I see it, of course, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam, I'm a big fan and he's doing great work as are many other people who are trying to do that as well, live and lead with Jewish values. I mean, Rabbi Sachs, he was our leader in that. I mean, he he told us, he he exemplified. You can probably see the bookcase behind me with an entire Rabbi Sachs section because you're right. He is the exemplar of that. You know, what I find is on a re- really micro level, um, so if I'm sitting at a, a Shabbat table and the conversation goes south and we start talking about people or there's negative stuff, you know, and it's... It's uh, not in a, in a pursuit of healthy dialogue. I feel like I have an opportunity in a really respectful, not shaming, not in a way that makes anybody feel embarrassed or uncomfortable, but of redirecting. And that's living Jewish values. And you can take it from the, you know, that really, really micro example. And that goes really, really wide. And there's a lot of opportunities. So when, 
when we're exasperated because we're reading articles about the nefarious intentions of all of the social media companies to co-opt our brains, our children's brains, what they're thinking and what they believe, we should remember that we don't have to be passive actors, passive recipients or victims of this, but that we can be proactive and that we come from a tradition uh, thankfully, where we actually really have something meaningful to contribute to the discourse and to the ecosystem of what's going on. We have a role to play. I want to take something that you mentioned before in terms of having communities that are a type of echo chamber where extremism or perhaps anti-Semitism can rear their ugly heads. Another aspect of community, we talked about good sides before, but another aspect of community, which is a negative, is what might be the reality of these communities not being in-person communities. In other words, the fact that the community can be built, that I can talk to like-minded people can be a great thing. I can find people, as we mentioned, who have similar challenges, people who have ways of helping me. I also can find people who can reinforce the worst parts of who I am. And finally, the fact is these communities are really not fully integrated, real-life human communities. No matter how much I'm in touch with somebody, it is over a screen. And by virtue of that... I always think of the term, the lonely man of faith. Forget what Rav Soloveitchik meant when he said it, but we all see every single day, tens of times, a group of people sitting around a table at a restaurant or a coffee shop or a kitchen table, five people, five people looking at five different phones. And you see in my mind, and I'm not saying that I'm immune from it, I don't want to pretend that I'm the one who doesn't do that, but it's five lonely people, whether they know it or not. And it's something which actually makes me very sad when I see it. I think that this is, because the word community is, uh, really hot right now. So brands, media companies, all different types of industries are talking about building their communities. And some of them mean in person and some of them mean like you're describing virtually. But what I think is spoken about a lot now, certainly on the, from the mental health side of it, uh, leaders in the mental health book, I have on my desk, this magnum opus, from uh, Gabor Mate, which, you know, he talks about, it's called the myth of normal trauma, illness and healing in a toxic culture. And he definitely addresses that we've lost real community and that people kind of are living their lives and they don't have the important infrastructure and support and the healthy dynamic that exists when you live in a community. And so people are, you know, the increase in loneliness and all of the mental health struggles that people have. We're really lucky. I talk to my kids about this all the time. We're really lucky because community is built into the Jewish infrastructure. Like it's just part of the package. Well, Shabbos, think of what Shabbos is in terms of turning off your phone for 25 hours. If nothing else, one day a week, someone who's Shomer Shabbos is not going to have that desire, that taiva, that drive to look at his phone. Or if he is, he can't do anything about it if he's going to keep Shabbos. Right. To me, that's a tremendous aspect of Shabbos that should not be ignored. I tell, you know, I say it all the time. Shabbos saves my life. I feel it every single week when I can power down and be with my children and not have any and no one having anything around them, you know, and with our families, it is like oxygen. I, I think it's like an, it's an infusion every single that's so necessary. And I it's funny because I work with. I work in with people who keep Shabbat and I work with people who don't keep Shabbat and I also work outside of the Jewish community. And this month has been a rough month for us because every other day I'm like, sorry, I'm offline. Sorry, I'm powering down. 
But I have had clients say to me, wow, you know, when I tell them that I'm signing off on Fridays, they're inspired by it. And I feel incredibly fortunate that we have the opportunity. But back to your point around community, listen, like, I think that, again, this is the positive and negative. The online communities are giving people a place to connect with people that they need and and all the good stuff we said already. But it's also creating a false sense of community that like, if something tragically happens, or you want to celebrate joy, your online community is only going to be able to participate as much as it can participate. And I think that the reason why the world is turning its attention more to actual community is because of the pandemic and that um, COVID- I mean, physical in-person communities. Correct. And, and the nature of communities in general. Mm-hmm. I think that it was it was brought to the fore as everybody was locked down and were forced to cut off entirely from any kind of community and where people started- realizing what they have and what they don't have. So again, I think the Orthodox Jewish community, we have a lot to share, a lot of really wonderful things that we can share about this, and to be mindful how we ourselves are building our own communities and whatever kind of communities we're building that are virtual and really paying attention to the differences of what's going on in real life and what's going on virtually. Dean, I want to mention a different danger, and that's the danger, sort of a strange one, fame being a dangerous drug, fame. I'm going to read you a quote from Chevy Chase. Chevy Chase, of course, was the first person from Saturday Night Live back in 75, 76, its first season, which was the only season he was actually on it, people don't realize. He only spent one year and a little bit on the show before Don Belushi and Dan Aykroyd and those guys became famous. Chevy Chase was the breakout star, and he said this because he did not handle fame very well at all. He got into all sorts of problems. And this is his quote. Fame is a very unnatural human condition. When you stop to realize that Abraham Lincoln was probably never seen by more than 400 people in a single evening, and that I can enter over 40 million homes in a single evening due to the power of television, you have to admit the situation is not normal. And now, very few of us are reaching 40 million people or 40 million homes. At the same time- Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. It is a problem. The drive for fame is something which is not good. People do crazy things in service of just having this elusive drug, which gets to the addiction issue also. And when they achieve it, it usually doesn't make for people being good people. Maybe people can survive fame, but I think that it's not necessarily a good thing to be, to be famous, if you're striving to be the best person you can be. I don't think it probably contributes to that. It might not detract if you're fortunate and you work at it, but I don't think it's a safe condition for people to strive for. That's my take on that. Yeah, I think that there's been a lot written about this. Um, Hollywood has written quite a bit uh, around this. You've heard people, first of all, we've witnessed, right? Because fame doesn't let any of them live normal lives. And so we see all the ugly and uh, it's 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 really sad. And, and social media is now democratizing fame. And also democratizing the idea that maybe I can become famous. When you and I were growing up, maybe I thought I'd be famous, but it would take a lot. It wasn't going to happen when I was in high school. Now, any 13-year-old can open an Instagram account for free, and if conditions go in the right way, can theoretically get millions of followers. It's entirely possible, at least in theory. Again, I think that these are important conversations for us to be having, certainly with our children, in our communities, um, and just Uh, understanding, listen, everybody's obsessed right now with like cancel culture. So there's a lot around 
fame because that's what we're seeing. We're seeing, I don't want to talk about cancel culture because that's like a whole other. That's a different podcast. Again, like it's been reduced to talking points uh, with all of the nuance flattened out of it in an absurd way. But what's relevant is that, you know, that's, that's what's happening is that like fame is becoming dangerous in some ways for people. And I think everybody will say that fame is not good for your mental health, period, full stop. I don't think there's anybody who will say that they didn't have to figure out how to adjust and deal with their mental health when it came to them becoming famous. And we see it now online with random people who have millions and millions of followers. I'm not talking about the Kim Kardashians and the others who are part of like the Hollywood fame, just regular people who they have created these incredible influencer personas online, whether it's TikTok or other platforms who just like devolve and completely disintegrate in public. And, you know, like it's really, really sad either because they've been canceled or because the comments in the comment section are just the vitriol is so awful that they, they bring their, you know, what's going on to them in public. And it's really sad to watch. It's addictive. And therefore, if they had 10 million followers and it goes down to 9 million, they have to do something to build it back up again. And outrageous behavior is certainly a good way of building up your followers. Yeah, I heard somebody in the Jewish community speaking about it. She was a, an influencer and really caught up in recording and posting every aspect of her life and that she reached a point where it became, you know, and she's quite famous and it reached a point where she just wasn't living anymore. It was all around, you know, just recording and posting, recording and posting. Again, like this, let's add this to the list. I mean, this is part of the list. And at the same time, people who have these giant platforms, quote unquote, influencers have the opportunity to advance a lot of good. Well, can you imagine if Rabbi Sachs, for example, didn't have the platform that he had? Think of all the ideas that he has added and enriched all of our lives as a result. If he had been some guy sitting in a base medrash and that was it, and his ideas stayed in his own mind, it would be chaval for all of us. Yeah, I, the Rabbi Sachs team knows, because I've said this to them uh, in, in the past, I, and I sadly think he was just getting started. You know, and I think that he was really just, I mean, he was on YouTube and he was trying to figure out the team was trying to figure out how to best optimize his reach so that his wisdom and his teachings could permeate our culture and our world. And they did a great job, but he was just getting started. And it's, you know, obviously it was sad that he died for many reasons, but that was one of the reasons was that he just, you know, the opportunity to have gone even further and become a viral influencer, if I can say that without sounding really disrespectful, he didn't have that opportunity. So hopefully his legacy will, the legacy foundation that they have put up now is going to try to do the best they can to make that happen. But again, opportunities for good, opportunities for bad. That is the orthodox conundrum. There we go. This is something you and I talked about in advance before we recorded. And it's the Canadian philosopher Marshall McLuhan. And his famous line was, the medium is the message. And in explaining what that means, here's his quote. Indeed, it is only too typical that the content of any medium blinds us to the character of the medium. And he also wrote in further explaining this, making it even clearer, the content is really just a piece of meat that a robber uses in order to distract the watchdog of your mind. In other words, the medium is everything. That's the real message going on here. And I know that this is something that you mentioned is important to you. So until now, we've really been talking largely about content and what 
social media does as content. Obviously, it would be related to what it does in other ways as well, though. But can you talk to me a little bit about this idea of the medium being the message, how you relate to that, and what you think that means for us? And maybe perhaps how that reality is changing us. I need to probe a little bit. When you say the medium is the message, are you saying that the platform, are you describing the platforms themselves are the medium and that- the- Yes, are, they're the message. That's what McLuhan meant. He'll say, for example, he, he was writing back in the 60s, yeah. but, but he, he'll say, for example, less important than the words on the page is the fact that you're reading a book. Less important than what you see is the fact that there's a light bulb in the room. That actually is the thing that truly is entering your mind. And what his point really was, as I understand it, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert in his thought, but I think he was really saying that those ideas, the fact that we're reading something by a light bulb, the fact that I'm looking at something on a screen, the very fact that I'm reading a book on a page, whatever the medium is that I'm using, in his day, the big one was television. That was the big new medium. The very fact that I'm using that medium that itself is changing my mind and changing my life much more than what the content of that medium is. If I watch a sitcom on TV, those ideas go into my head. The fact that I'm watching it on TV is something which is much, much bigger in terms of what my life is. And I don't even realize that that's happening because it's the most important aspect of it, but it's entirely subtle. I think he says that the mind is numb to it. We don't even realize that the most important message is the way that it's being transmitted in the first place. And I think that's doubly true for social media, which is not just being a passive recipient, it's something which we contribute to at the same time that we're imbibing it. That's very, um, it's, it's funny, I wanna use the word meta, but you know, like there's something that- Well, there's something terrifying about it. Yeah, because, because it really falls into this whole idea of like the addictive nature and that the medium are platforms and tools that are designed with pings and alerts and notifications in our hands and in our pockets and all around us all the time like these platforms are designed for addictive behaviors and what what does that really mean for us if if that is true then all of the good stuff that i said if the medium is to make us feel more lonely and depressed because because we need to get the next dopamine hit then, you know, what are, what are we doing here to begin with? You know, when I first heard that quote, it was something that we used when we would talk to educators about what was going on in schools and what was going on in classrooms or in businesses, you know, how you design your space, right? is actually really important. If you're a boss and you sit behind a big giant desk and you make everybody who comes into your meeting sit behind in a lower chair, the medium is the message. Like we get the point. And if you're an educator and you keep your desks in rows, but you tell the parent body, no, I'm into collaboration and I want everyone to feel included, but there are children who are sitting at the very, very end of the rows, you know, in the back corners, the medium is the message. It really doesn't matter what you say. And so if I'm going to say, well, social media is about connectivity and joy and helping people feel less alone and education and opportunity and all of these wonderful things, if it's a device that is looking to make me crave more dopamine and make me struggle to put it down because I have to always be connected, then like, what is really going on? So I think that you know, these are, these are important things for us to struggle with. And I think places like the Center for Humane Technology, who, uh, Tristan, I forget his last name, who made this movie about the social dilemma, I think that they're not saying, let's shut this down. You know, like social media is 100% bad. We're going to wipe it out. We're going to get rid of it. We're going to squeeze off 
We're going to starve it for funding. We're all boycotting. They're not saying that because they're recognizing the macro wins like the uh, uh, one of the heads of Spotify discussed. They're saying, let us figure out how we can sanctify, elevate, create boundaries and structures to be able to make this the best we can for humanity. Okay, Dina, that leads to my final questions here. Two final questions, and it's really just your personal opinion about something. When you talk about the macro wins and you know, don't fight against it, that's obviously on a societal level or a communal level. But what about on an individual level? What do you think about somebody who says, I am not interested in participating in social media for whatever my reasons are? And I'm speaking about Orthodox Jews here. Let's talk about our community. Do you think that that is a fundamental mistake? Do you think that's probably admirable? Do you think it's something in between? What do you think a person should do? The door is not closing for us. But for me personally, I can do whatever I want. And maybe I'm better off by trying to keep that door closed for me or my immediate family. What's your opinion about that? So I'm working really hard uh, on myself to become less and less judgmental as a person. And that means that I like to really listen and understand people's perspectives and opinions. And I'm working really hard not to judge that. So in light of that, I think that it is everyone's prerogative and everybody, I, I have a friend who years ago told me that she got off of, you know, that's when it was like kind of just Facebook. There really wasn't much else to do. And she said she had to get off of it because it was not healthy for her. And she identified that. And I think that we are all charged. We need to all look within ourselves and to decide how can we develop healthy habits and what are those healthy habits for ourselves and for our family. And if for people, I mean, I have, I'll call him a friend. He's been a supporter and a funder who really, really wants to do everything he can to support in-person, face-to-face interactions and learning and Jewish education and does not believe, he really believes in the pernicious effects of social media and wants to minimize it as much as possible. So I think he would say, power to you, get off of it, get off of social media. And I think he would be really supportive of that as I think he's trying to do himself. I think it's really personal. I think that everybody's going to find their right balance of what's right for them, recognizing and not, we cannot put our heads in the sand in either direction, in either direction. Like I do want to say for everything we're talking about, you will never hear me say, oh, I don't understand that. That's like my kids. Like that's for the kids. The TikTok is for the kids. I don't understand it. If you're going to make a decision not to participate or utilize whatever the platforms are, you better take the time to educate yourself. We all have to educate ourselves with what these platforms are and what they do so that whatever decisions we're making, they are informed decisions. There is no putting our heads in the sand. So if you're going to choose, I'm not doing it. And if you, I have a good friend who doesn't let his daughters, they are not allowed to basically be on social media at all. And they're, they're um, young teenagers. They're Jewish, but they're not Orthodox, but he's made an educational developmental decision that this is what's right for his kids. We all have to be making those decisions and we have to support each other, but remain educated and not disengage and say, I don't understand that. Like, that's not for me. In this day and age, a really important message to me is I'm really passionate about media and I want to do it professionally and help everybody and I want to leverage it and do all the good things. But I also want to make sure that people don't pretend 
like they cannot be educated about what is going on on these platforms. We need to know because they are pervasive and in the air we breathe and we need to be educated about the good and the bad. And that, Dina, leads me to my final question, which is not about the personal individual members of the Orthodox community and what each of us decides, but rather the community as a whole. If you could predict, and obviously no one can really know, if you could look into the future and talk about the Orthodox community at large, and obviously it's a multifaceted society, it's not just one uniform group, but still, what do you think the future holds regarding the connection between the Orthodox community and its relationship with social media? I feel like Gary Vaynerchuk right now. I don't know if you know who that is, but he's a media mogul. He's a Jew. He's a media mogul and he's always making predictions and his predictions are all over social media from like years ago to now. So I always say to anybody who asks me to predict, I always say, I'm not Gary V. I can't make those predictions. Well, are his predictions right usually? Um, so uh, he has a pretty good track record. Um, I think he's learning that his predictions have to be shorter in time because our world is changing and moving so rapidly that anybody who's predicting things long term is probably foolish at best because like, who, how could we ever predict who could have predicted COVID? Oh, actually, I shouldn't say that people did predict COVID. We didn't pay attention to them. I can predict and I can hope. My prediction is that we will continue to evolve, both because we're going to be forced to evolve because social media is such a pervasive part of our culture and we won't be able to ignore it. You know, anybody who's trying to ignore it or deprioritize it, they're going to continue to be forced to look at it and to pivot and to reposition themselves with it. I'm a hopeful person, Scott, so I want to look at it in, in what I hope to be true. What I hope to be true and what I think is possible is that the Jewish community at large, the world community, I'll start macro, the world community, communities of faith, the Jewish community, and then the Orthodox community are going to continue to educate themselves about the good and the bad and to continue to find ways to leverage and maximize the good to be able to promote all of the good stuff so that we can advance ourselves, our communities, the larger world to better and better places. I, I believe that. I believe in the power of good and I believe in, in humanity. And I think that there are more good guys than not. And I think that if the, the good people understand that we're all in this together and that we should do what we can to be active, whatever that might look like for each of us, then we can find ourselves in a, in a better place. I think that there are a lot of people who can paint very, very dark pictures of what could be in the future for us as well. And I think that we need to have those conversations to protect ourselves, to be smarter, and to make sure we don't, that it doesn't happen, and that we do, we put in whatever we need, whatever safeguards we need to put in as humanity to protect ourselves from that. But I, I will, nobody will shake my optimism and my belief in the goodness of human beings. And ironically, I believe in the, more in the goodness of human beings because of what I see on social media. Some people will say, wow, like the, the vitriol and ugly and hate, and they'll really focus on that. And what I end up seeing is these trends. I mean, you know, like the, we were laughing about the Miami boys choir trend or yeah. the corn, the corn song trend before that, or things that 
reflect an innate goodness and wholesomeness and desire by most human beings, because human nature is universal, right? Most human beings who just want to live good, safe, happy, healthy lives and don't want to be filled with hate and rage and all of that ugly stuff. And so social media has reinforced that belief for me that there's actually a lot of us. And if we band together, I mean, against, you know, like these behemoth organizations that have all the money and have all our data. So like, okay, <laughs> but in our, in whatever ways that we can, you know, obviously on a, on a corporate level and down to the individual level, I'm very optimistic and hopeful for our future. Well, that's a great way to end this podcast. You know, this has been fascinating, informative and entertaining. And as I said at the beginning, you are a wonderful friend and I always am so impressed, as is Aliza, with your insight and your knowledge. And I'm glad to have the opportunity to now share it with a wider audience as well, my audience too. So thank you very much for coming on the podcast. And I certainly hope you'll come on again soon. And maybe at some point, as we talked about, be involved in Jewish Coffee House podcasting in perhaps a different way as well. Yes, I, I'm very optimistic about the future of Jewish Coffee House. And I thank you for your friendship and the opportunity to have these conversations recorded because we have these conversations all the time. Now we got to have <laughs> this good. recorded and they look forward to hearing feedback and doing this again. Thank you. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like The Orthodox Conundrum Podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, The Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers. And you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffeehouse can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.